0: Before we get stuck into this podcast, go to your local bottle or pub and ask for a Last Man Standing, a perfectly paced Australian lager. At Just Having a Crack, we love it, and the boys at Last Man Standing are great supporters of the show. Check them out on tap or at your local bottle Let's get on with the show.
1: I'm Peter Mears. I'm this week's guest on Just Having a Crack with Banger and Blackie.
2: Blakey, it's been fantastic to have also insurance on board, mate.
0: Yeah, I know. And they specialise in business insurance as well as domestic insurance. And they take the pain out of it when you want to have them make a claim.
2: And they do, mate. And they do specialise a little bit as well in the NDIS market and also the non-for-profit. But that's just a partnership that they've got into because they've done such a great job. But, mate, they've helped a couple of mates of mine out in the printing industry recently. Grant is so on board with it.
0: Yep. If you want the best cover at the best rate, For your business, give Grant and the team a call at 07 3048
2: 8890. Or get in touch with Blakey and I, send us an email, give us a text, give us a ring, give us a Facebook message. Grant Mason, he's just a ripping bloke, he'll look after you, he'll tell you how it is without making it sound too complicated. Also, insurance.
0: Also is awesome. Let's get on with the show. day and welcome to Just Having a Crack. Blakey, here I'm here with Banger as usual. How
2: are you, Banger? Hey, Blakey. Mate, I'm good, mate. First, basically, we, we missed last week because all the COVID stuff happening, yep. and we're we're back early in the week this time. Yep. And, mate, I'm really looking forward to our, our podcast, man, and today I'm looking forward
0: to it a lot. Yeah, well, it's another one of our sporting journalists who, uh, you know, have, has got to see a broad range of sports, but, you know, there's a ton of stories in amongst them as well. And, and 18,
2: uh, 18 hours or 18 days of stories, and... Um, I'm just thinking sports scene, I'm thinking shows like Larrikins and yep. Legends, and we'll go through it all later on, what he had, and he just had sports stars and legends, and he was on Channel 7 sports scene. Yeah. He's on the line. Peter Mears. Peter, how are you, mate? G'day, Vanger.
1: I'm very well, living in luxury up here
2: in the sun,
0: sunny Ah, uh, God's country.
2: <laughs> God's country, all right, mate. Are you enjoying it up there? Where, where are you up there?
1: At Mount Coulomb, we came up here because our daughter was having a baby. We we're going to help out as the grandparents do, you know. Yeah. We we're living quite happily at Palm Beach in the Gold Coast, yeah. where we went when the wife finished teaching. And uh, we just went, how good is this? This Sunshine Coast is fabulous. It's all like the Gold Coast used to be thirty years ago, you know. Mate, you know so we found a to block of land and built a house, and here
0: we are. And you have a bit more in your back pocket after leaving Hedges Avenue. You <laughs> made <got> Mount Coolan, wouldn't
2: you? We
1: only rented down there, Blakey. Couldn't
2: afford to buy. And you've got a great golf course there, Mount Oh, 100 percent. Little hidden gem. It's got yeah, a lot of my balls in the water on Armadale mm. Corner there. But yeah, yeah, there's a lot cool. of water there. <laughs> there's it's a, a lot. Lovely of... Little track, isn't it, Pete? Where did you grow up, mate? Is that in Sydney or in the bush? No,
1: born at Forbes in central western New South Wales. Dad was a sheep farmer. So uh, that's where I sort of grew up till I went to boarding school because mum and dad split up. So when I was six, I went to boarding school down in Sydney.
2: What school were you at in Sydney?
1: Cranbrook School. It's a small private school in Bellevue Hill. My dad went there and his his brothers went there. and My older brother, who was four years older than me, so sort of followed in their footsteps and loved it. Great school, played a lot of sport. Um, I was bored of it for my whole time. So every afternoon it was uh, cricket, uh, touch footy, uh, forcing back or whatever, playing some sort of sport. You know, I just loved sports from the word go.
0: Did it, did it take you long to settle into boarding life, um, Pete?
1: It did not with me because I found that there was always something to do. I know I've heard stories from people about being homesick and all that.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, when I was on the farm, Dad was out on the the tractor or on the horses uh, running up the sheep and, my brother and I were stuck at home and, you know, I, I frankly was never going to be a good farmer. I just got too bored <laughs> too easily. Yeah. And I just loved the fact that there was always mates around and you always had something to do. Uh, I, I loved it. The mates that I had at school in those days are still good friends.
0: Uh, and Pete Forbes is a really strong uh, country rugby league town as well. So was was rugby league sort of like your first uh, sport that you sort of picked up as a kid?
1: Uh, probably not. Um, the first thing I remember listening to was on the radio was the Davis Cup in 1953 when will be satius and Trayton. I, I was about six years old at the Ford Swimming Pool, yeah, uh, with a transistor radio, and that made a bit of an impression on me. Uh, I didn't really come into contact with uh, rugby league as a sport until I went down uh, when I was in, at Cranbrook. The rugby league was. Um, not the sport we played. We played rugby union. Yep. But our headmaster was an English fellow called Geoffrey Keel. He saw the English team. Eric Ashton's team came to town in 1962. And he said, this is the best rugby team. I don't care which card you follow, but go out and watch these guys play football because they're the best team I've ever seen. And they beat Australia in the series in 1962. Uh, that started my love of rugby league.
2: Incredible. And did you play a bit of Union? I know cricket was obviously, and we'll get into that soon, was your, probably one of your first loves with your tennis, but did you play Union as well at school?
1: Yeah, I played right through school. I ended up in the first uh, last and, um, was <laughs> my last year at school. I was pretty skinny. I was nine and a half in my last year at school, liking these big, boofy guys and taking a long while to get up after being tackled. But uh, after I left school... I went to university and was at college, and for some reason, I know all the potatoes I had at the, the college uh, dining room. But I put on about two stone, and uh, I ended up about twelve stone playing in the centres. Well. I played uh, reserve grade Sydney Union and then I came to Brisbane and played first grade for Jeeps.
2: I thought you played wow. for Jeeps, and it's actually funny just listening to your voice. I reckon Peter Evans Bench is a great mate mm. of mine from East. And yeah, uh, you would have played with Bench, wouldn't you, and Jack?
1: Yeah, yeah, both of them, actually. Good sportsmen. guys and terrific cricketers as well as rugby players. Yeah, they were contemporaries of mine, much better footballers than me. I was the weak link in the backline banger, I've got to admit. I was lucky to play with guys like Google Clark and Lordy Graham. Yeah. Uh, they were a fantastic side. They won the premiership the year that I didn't play in, 1972.
2: <laughs> that was a strong club, wasn't it?
1: Oh, yeah, they were then. And I think... All credit to the organisers of the club. They've really grown in strengths and, and numbers. And they've got a great set-up down there at Yoko Road in Ashgrove now. Hmm. Uh, it's great to see the club's really thrived.
0: And Pete, leaving school, did, what aspirations did you have as far as a career goes?
1: I That was a good question because I didn't know what I was going to do yeah. and I eventually ended up, my dad kept asking me because he thought out all this money to send me to school You know, yeah. and uh, I had a vocational guidance test because I hated maths and science and I loved the outdoors, they said I should be a surveyor so <laughs> that certainly was never going to happen yeah. and I, so I came up with the idea that I'd go to England and play Lancashire League cricket yeah. because I was... Captain of my underage teams, and I was in the first two years at school, so I thought cricket could be the go. And mm. I'd heard about these guys from Australia going over and playing for a team in the Lancashire League and coming back and making a big time. Mm. So I told Dad my plans, and I, the idea was basically I'd go over there and every time I got 50 or 5, a, they'd take the hat around and you'd get 50 pounds or whatever it might be. Mm. And then at the end of the season, you'd... Uh, be asked to come back as a professional the following year, and you'd make two thousand pounds for the season. Easy plan. You'd be rich, mm. yeah. And so then I'd come back, and uh, they'd invite me because they would have read about my prowess. So they'd invite me down to practice at the New South Wales nets. And of course, I would perform outstandingly well and end up playing for Australia as a rounder. Really? Dad said one sentence: "You're not bloody good enough." <laughs> you you get a ticket.
3: Yeah,
2: <laughs> that is that is funny. So did you didn't you didn't go? Well, he gave me some very good
1: advice. I, I went to uni, and I, I, the thing I disliked least, I suppose, was arts. And so I did arts. You know, I did, really didn't know what I was going to do. He wanted me to do arts law, and yeah, basically, my mum wanted me to be a doctor, but I hated the sight of blood. So um, I thought arts might be the go. And he said to me, if you get a ticket, you get a degree, you can become a sports commentator and you can go to all the best grounds in the world, you can travel the world, do the Olympics, sit in the best seat in the house and you don't get knocked around. And you can make a fortune and you're not good enough to do it as a player. So that sat in the back of my skull for a couple of years and I kept playing the sport when I was at Sydney University. I played cricket and rugby uh, around a bit. And... Uh, Of course, when I uh, finished and uh, did law, I failed in the first year because I was always out playing golf or practicing (laughs) cricket or whatever. So law didn't last long. And uh, so then I got a job because I lost the scholarship that I had and I got a job as a groundsman at the Ovals at Sydney University, which I had for a year. And so I used to prepare the cricket pitches and put up the nets and put
2: up the goalposts. It was a great life painted the fences. It's always good to be able to prepare those wickets when you're a bowler too, isn't it?
1: Absolutely, mate. <laughs> if we were batting, I'd mow the outfield all day and if we were bowling, I'd water the pitch. I've got a lot of respect for clever groundsmen. And uh, it, it all turned out to be uh, sort of destiny, I suppose, because one day I was picking up uh, papers around the Oval Banks with an old epa from the Sports Union and spearing the Sydney Morning Herald and I speared this herald and it had the worm, the ABC worm, the mm. Sports trainee job was advertised, mm. and I thought, "Oh, what's this all about?" Because I love my sport. But mm. then it said a, a good speaking voice is essential. And I came from Western New South Wales, well, so I down you going, mate, All right, You know, how are you go. <laughs> and uh, I thought I'll never make it with the ABC because they're so posh. And uh, anyway, I applied for the job, but I forgot about it. I, I kept the clipping from the paper in my back pocket. Mm. And a couple of months later, I was at a place for dinner celebrating getting my degree. And uh, everyone was sitting there at the table, it was about 10 people, and everyone went out to get coffee. And I was left with one bloke at the table, and he said, what are you going to do with your BA? And I said, I'm going to join Qantas. I like flying. I'd love to be a pilot with Qantas. And he said, I think you'd be wasting your time from what you and your, your mate have been talking about sounds like you like sport. Why don't you go for the job at the ABC that's looking for sports training?
3: Hmm. And
1: I said, you mean this one? And I pulled out this crumpled old piece of Sydney Morning Herald and said, is this the job you're talking about? And he said, yeah, you're interested, are you? My name's Arthur Winton. I'm the head of ABC Radio for New South Wales. <laughs> How lucky was that? On Monday, go in and see Bernie Kerr and he'll talk to you about it. and You might even get the job. Well, bugger me dead, I got it. <laughs> <That's> <laughs>
2: That is so cool. And so from the start, so you walk into the traineeship, you would have been working with some of the legends already of, of commentary, I suppose.
1: Absolutely. I, in the same office were Alan McGilbray, Norman May, Alan Marks, John O'Reilly, Bert Oliver, Gordon Gray, Jim Orford. It was terrific. Great place to learn. We went to the pub every afternoon. I didn't learn much during the day, but I learned
2: a lot at the pub. <laughs> <laughs> with those blokes? with Because, I mean, Norman loved the drink, didn't he? Oh, did he ever? And you didn't engage in a drinking bout with Norman May
1: because nobody out uh, drank nugget. Yeah. He was a legend. But, you know, he just, just hearing him, uh, his knowledge was incredible. Um, he did his homework. Uh, it might have looked like he never did any work, but he was always gazing out the windows of the ABC building in William Street in Sydney. And uh, he used to get out to go down and put money in his parking meter because he always parked illegally. Yeah, But everyone loved him, and so the cops would give him a ticket, but he never seemed to have to pay them. <laughs> and <laughs> he, he taught me everything I knew. He took me for my audition, actually, and he stopped me halfway through. He said, why are you speaking with that posh voice? Yeah, And I said, well, I've listened to the ABC a bit on the radio, and James Dibble speaks like this, so I thought I'd try and imitate him. <laughs> and he said, no, mate, not in sport.
3: Yeah. It's
1: different in sport. It's a communication medium that you're in. Broadcasting sport on radio, so you're talking one to one, not like a town hall gathering. Yeah. And you're telling me briefly and concisely and accurately and naturally in your normal voice what happened, who won it, why. And it was the best
0: advice I ever had. So, what were some of the early roles that you had to play as far as a traineeship goes in the ABC?
1: Well, we had, through Gordon, and I all had um, uh, traineeship for two years. Yeah. and For me, I had six months of elocution lessons (laughs) teaching me how to speak properly. They did a Pygmalion on me. But basically, we used to write the scripts for the guys who did the programs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we didn't get to go on air for quite a long while. I remember the first time I went on, I was so nervous. I had to rest the script against the desk microphone, which was on a little pedestal. Mm.
3: The
1: 4035 cricket ball mic, they used to call it. Mm. And uh, so we didn't really do any commentary. And after two years, Bernie called me into his office, Bernie Kerr, the boss, and he said, look, if you're thinking of uh, trying something else, now would be a good time. <laughs> and I thought, oh, Jesus, yeah. I'm being shown the door. And he said, have you ever done any commentary of anything? And I said, yeah, I've been sitting on the hill at the Sydney sports ground calling the league. Yeah. And he said, well, go and get me the tape. So I brought in my tape of the Roosters playing St. George or whoever it was, yeah. which is pretty ordinary. And he just listened to it and he said, oh, there's, there's some hope there. But he said there's a couple of words you could get rid of, like here and there. You don't, on that occasion, you don't need those terms. But otherwise, you're pretty accurate and you're enthusiastic. And that's the main thing. So we'll give you a chance. There's a vacancy for three weeks down in Hobart. Would you like to go down there and fill in? And I said, oh, would I ever, that'd be fantastic. I didn't even know what I was letting myself in for. I mm. ended up staying down there for a year. Mm. And after a week, I was doing two television shows. Um, one, one of which was uh, was called uh, Line Up, with a fellow called Bruce Grundy, as producer, mm. where I used to do Vox Pops in the park, talking about do you want daylight saving, or should we have decimal currency, and that sort of stuff. Yep. Yeah. Um, Then I did On the Ball, which was an Aussie Rules preview program, but on a Friday before the weekend of footy, because the only code in town was Australian Rules. And then on the Monday, I did Who Won and Why with Vern Ray, Nunky Ayers and Peter Ross. They just looked after me superbly. i travelled around the island every week in an ABC vehicle interviewing the coaches and the players and the different teams because down in Cassie, I don't know if you know the situation, but is so parochial that the people in Launceston don't no want to know about Hobart, mm. and the Queenstown people couldn't give a rat's about either of the other two, so you had to cover all three competitions. So I'd travel around and interview these people, and they were all so sympathetic to me, and they knew I knew nothing about Australian rules, but they fed me, and I got a, a, an appreciation of the game, but I never actually got to call it, because um, you know, I just wasn't quite good enough, and they had blokes who were former legends who players turned commentators. I got to see Tassie play Western Australia, who had Polly Farmer and Barry Cable. Tasmania beat them with the last kick. Peter Marquis kicked a goal from the right forward pocket to win the game in the last minute with his kick. And I thought, oh, I can't wait for next season. Well, next season, I was in Brisbane. Oh, that's when you
2: moved to Brisbane. Brisbane. Hey, just quickly, when you were in Tassie, is this where you got to commentate with the great, I mean, I still think one of my favourite ever commentators, Brian Johnson?
1: Yes, absolutely. It the very first game, actually, Vanga. So you imagine how nervous I was. But uh, I joined South Hobart Cricket Club when I was down there. Where they had uh, a team and uh, they had the Queensland uh, – sorry, the Tasmanian wicket keeper was Rodney Cass, who was an English import. So he, he sort of introduced me to the players. And I, I didn't actually play. I used to go and practice because we worked every Saturday and Sunday. And you know what? the go is when you're a sports broadcaster you miss out on playing quite a lot because you're always working and this was uh, where I sort of got to meet all the <coughs> excuse me, Tasmanian players and so it was pretty handy because uh, when I was asked to call the game between Tasmania who weren't in the Sheffield Tube at that stage so it was the Tasmanian 11 boosted by the presence of Doug Walters and Paul Sheehan uh, against the touring MCC team that had players like Illingworth, Boycott, Snow, Great right Side, Underwood. Uh, they were a pretty good side. And uh, they played um, Tasmanian 11 at the Domain Cricket Centre. They didn't have Bell Reef in those days. And so I got there nice and early, nervous as a kitten. You can imagine. And Being told that I was working with a BBC guy and he was there in his brogues and his cream-coloured suit with his blood and custard Lord's tie on. He looked Fantastic, Brian Johnston, one of the legends.
2: Well, well, I mean, just before you tell the story, just quickly, the, the sideline, Phil Salter, who was mm. on our podcast a while ago, he's great mates with Ian Johnson, who is also a listener. So Ian will mm. be listening to this story about his dad. So yeah, t- take us, take us through. Well, Ian, uh, your dad was very kind to me, uh, but he tested me out initially
1: because uh, it was around Christmas. I think it might have been Boxing Day and, uh, I'm not sure we had the Boxing Day test in Melbourne at that stage, but it was around Christmas anyway. And um, he said, Good morning, everyone. This is Brian Johnston of the BBC, and I'm working here at the uh, wonderful uh, demand cricket centre uh, with someone who knows the local scene, Peter Mears. And Peter's going to run through the Tasmanian fielding side because Tasmania have won the toss and elected to bowl first. And Pete will run through the team. Good morning, Peter. And I had to then – he tested me because I had to know all the names of all the players, and they didn't have names or numbers on their back in those yeah. days, as you know. Yeah. So I passed that test, and uh, so I got a bit emboldened by that, and I said, how would you enjoy Christmas, Brian? Down under. And he said, well, good question that, Peter, because, you know, it's the first time I've been away from the mother country for Christmas, and I actually bathed. <laughs> and I thought geez, the, the myth about the unwashed palm is true. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You Australians would probably say, had a shower.
3: Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> Made me feel a bit better. And he, t- he just kept me laughing. Yeah. And the great thing about when you're nervous is if it takes your mind off it and you're laughing, you don't really notice how nervous you are. And suddenly it was lunchtime and I was awake.
0: Do you look back on that and go, wow, you know, I can't, in retrospect, that opportunity to do that was, was something pretty special?
1: I think uh, somebody up there uh, smiled on me, mate. I was so lucky, firstly, with getting into the ABC and then getting sent to Hobart because someone else was unavailable. Arthur it was. Mm. My boss in Brisbane, he got sent from Brisbane to Tassie and then back to Brisbane, and that left a vacancy because Ron Royce, who was broadcasting in Brisbane, had gone into pub business. So anyway, it was a bit of um, like chess, moving around, the pieces around the board. Mm. And um, I was so lucky to you know, start off my career with Brian Johnson in the cricket. And my first ever rugby commentary was Queensland beating the British Isles in 1971 when I first came to Brisbane. I, oh. I was as green as grass. And the first match I ever get to call was probably the biggest upset in the history of the game. Yeah. with The mighty British Lions being beaten by Queensland.
3: Yeah. Uh, in
1: their first match, and they went on to tour New Zealand and won the series three 0 against the All Blacks. Hmm. But Queensland beat them, and I got to call it. So hmm. that was a great thrill. I who with so Peter? Up. Who
2: was that with? Uh, who with
1: Dick Marks was my co-commentator.
2: What a legend he is!
1: Oh hmm. mate, look, I've got to tell you, there's a funny little anecdote that I can tell you about this. The absolute legend, and of course, you know, working with him was a thrill. And we're calling the game just on ABC Radio for. Queensland. And then in my headphones, I get this voice, a British voice saying, Commentators, this is BBC Radio, World Service. Would you please carry on commentating, but welcome listeners throughout the British Isles. Because of the closeness of the scores, we're going to take the last five minutes of the match. So please welcome <laughs> listeners.
3: Oh, wow. And, I thought, yeah. and
1: I've shat myself. Yeah. <laughs> I've got headphones on it. You know, it's like when you hold a seashell to your ear, you hear this. Yeah. And suddenly we're on to, it seemed like, the world. And so I was just speechless. I, I was struck dumb. I didn't say a word. And Vicky Marks realised what was going on and he said, well, g'day. And le- welcome to you listeners in England because you're going to choke on your cornflakes. Queensland are beating the British Lions by nine points to three. Howard Lloyd Grahams just kicked another field goal and it's 12 points to three. And the biggest upset they have ever seen is about to happen. And it did.
2: Lloydy. so Lloydie was playing. Obviously, kicked the field goal. He kicked
1: two field goals.
2: Yeah. Oh, wow! And some of the other players in that side.
1: Uh, Jules Garasimov was sort of my hero. He yeah. was on the bench at the age of about forty. Yeah. And when he ran onto the field, he lifted the roof on the stand. <laughs> Peter McLean yeah. played in that team.
2: The brother of uh, Spider. Spider.
1: The yeah. Of, yeah, Spider McLean. Yeah. Um, Dave Dunworth was a prop. Peter Horton was the hooker.
2: Well, so that's, that's right, 19... Rod Howes was
1: the halfback. Jeff McLean was on a wing. I remember Lloydy Graham at fullback. It was
2: he like been, a rock. Before Tony Shaw, Mark Lone, Graham Noon. Yeah, it's, it's just before all those guys. It,
1: they came into it 72-73. Lone, Shaw and McLean, the great triumvirate for Queensland, who really changed the face of rugby union in Queensland because after 10 years of thrashings by New South Wales, it got to the stage that... Um, New South Wales didn't want to play Queensland in
3: 1962.
1: Mm. Uh, so by 72, 73, they weren't really crowd-pleasing matches because New South Wales used to win so easily. Mm. But then these guys came along and 1976, uh, Queensland won 42 to to nil, I think it was, 42 to six, 42 mm. to six. And then in 1979, we beat them 49-nil. Mm. So that really changed the trend of uh, those interstate games. and really, Those three guys put Rugby Union on the map, and I heard uh, Mel Johnson saying that he reckoned it was the reason that um, they got the state of origin in Rugby League, because Ron McAuliffe thought that the Rugby Union was getting too much press because they kept winning,
3: mm.
1: and the Rugby League, Queensland, New South Wales, were losing. Mm. So that's interesting, that theory. I heard that terrific interview you did with Mel Johnson.
2: Yeah, mm. thank you, mate. Thank you. I'll just... Going back to when you first came up to Brisbane, didn't you go to Toowoomba for a, a comment, commentating a rugby league game as well?
1: Oh yeah, it's an embarrassing <laughs> story actually, banger. But I, <laughs> I was uh, asked to do the Bolivar Cup uh, with uh, Toowoomba playing Ipswich, and I'd not, you've got to remember that I, even though I like rugby league, I hadn't seen any rugby league in Queensland, and let alone even in New South Wales. I only used to watch East. Uh, whoever they were playing. And then I'd had a year in Hobart not calling or playing any sport. And so I came up to Brisbane and, and after Denham and God bless his soul put me on uh, calling the Rugby League, which I, I loved the chance to do it. But I think Cyril Connell, who's my expert commentator, sussed out that I was pretty inexperienced. And on the way up to uh, the it's Athletic cool. Oval in Swim, he said, yeah, he was my co-commentator.
2: Yeah, good that? Mm. What a legend. You wouldn't let mm. All these legends that you're oh, talking it's about. Crazy. It's just incredible.
1: Well, it's, I was just so lucky. And he was fantastic because he said, look, how much do you know about rugby league? And I said, not much. He said, can you name me a Queensland player? And I said, no, not one. Mm. <laughs> he said, oh, dear. Well, I've got some advice for you. Go into the dressing rooms before the game and have a look at the players because it'll help your commentary. You can pick up things like, you know, a person has cut his sleeves short or he's got a beard or he's got flashes on his boots because in those days, everyone wore black boots. but One or two were wearing red boots or, you know, stripy boots or something like that. And just have a look at the players because sometimes you can't see a number and as a commentator, you need to identify them. And he said, look, just between you and me, have a look at the halves, the wingers, the fullbacks, and the rest will look after themselves. You're on radio, you can tell lies. <laughs> oh, no, pretty good advice. And so I knocked on the door of the, to all the dressing room. This skinny, dark-haired goat answered the door, and I said, "Hello, I'm Peter Mears from ABC. I'm calling the game." And he said, "My name's Wayne Bennett. <laughs> the <laughs> first player I ever met in Queensland was Wayne Bennett."
2: Wow, he would have been a winger, wouldn't he? He'd been a winger then, I suppose. He was a,
1: a skinny winger or fullback. Yep. yep, and he was quick. And he was elusive and a bloody good player too. Played for Queensland, he played did. for Australia.
2: Played for Australia and New he Zealand, didn't he? Didn't. Yeah, he did, he did. A good player.
1: Yeah. And so anyway, he introduced me to the Toowoomba players and I sat in the corner and made notes and I did the same with the Ipswich team. Hugh Doherty, a little bald-headed hooker, introduced me to all the Ipswich guys. And so I'm sitting on the sideline at a card table because we didn't have a commentary box and there's five other commentary teams there. That's how popular rugby league was in 1971. And I could hear every word that Fonda Matassa said because he had that loud foghorn of a voice. And Billy J. Smith was on the other side of me. He'd just cut his teeth that year. And um, anyway, if I couldn't hear it, if I couldn't pick up a name, I'd take one headphone off and I'd hear Fonda Matassa's beefy voice (laughs) beefing out who the player was. And so I'd I'd say who that player was. But the rest of the time, I just sort of made it up. And I was getting into the the swing of the game and feeling like I actually...
2: Fonda's commentating for another station.
1: Yeah, Fonda was working for 4KQ, I
2: think it was. 4KQ. And you're listening and hearing him say the players. (laughs) I'm on on (laughs) on ABC (laughs) 4QR. That that is so funny. That's so good.
1: And George Lovejoy was there, the legend, for 4 VH. Yeah. So all all the great commentators, Peter Gallagher was there. Uh, And, you know, everyone was very friendly and helpful to me. I've got to say that. But anyway... The game's just started and I've gone for about five minutes and Toowoomba are pressing the Ipswich line and it looks like they're about to score. And I'm getting excited and saying, and the ball comes out to Bennett on the wing and he dives for the corner and he's bundled out. Oh! <laughs> I get this rib, uh, this elbow in my ribs as I'm describing what I think is going to be the first try. Yeah. Luckily, he was bundled into touch and there was no try and I turned round to my scorer, Brian Hoare, who was, a former Epswich second rower next to me. Yeah, you know, I sort of couldn't say, what are you doing? I just put through my hands in the air and looked at him. And anyway, he, he pointed to the program, and so I kept on calling. And then they go to the races, and Larry Pratt calling the third race at Eagle Farm. And I said, what's going on? Why did you cut, hit me? And he said, concentrate on the job in hand. You're making mistakes. And I, before I could ask him what mistakes, I'm back on air again. Yeah. So anyway, it's what you got the ball and I'm getting excited and then once again I get the elbow in the ribs and I turn around to Brian the next time they go for a break to the races. What's your problem? I'm trying to do my best here. I'm trying to stuff this up on the next flight back down to Hobart <laughs> and he turned my cheat sheet upside down because I had a big manila folder with the names in capitals. Yep. He turned it upside down and he said Toowoomba are the blue, Ipswich are the green. You've got the teams around <laughs> the wrong way, you idiot.
2: <laughs> <laughs> what about that? Your first game you're calling and you get the teams wrong.
1: <laughs> nobody nobody sussed anything except for perhaps people at the, at the game, you know, because no team had scored, no points had been scored. So I went to the office on Monday and Arthur Denderman asked me how I went and I said, Brandon, when's the next call? hoping like hell that he hadn't found out what actually happened. So that's how I started. I was awful. The first season, I was dreadful. And so I ended up going down. I was playing rugby with Jeeps at the time in the lower grades, and uh, I ended up going down to the rugby league clubs because Arthur said, look, do you want to be a a rugby league commentator or a rugby union player? And I said, I want to be a league commentator. He said, well, you know, Get to know the players a bit better, so I went down to training and used to train with them oh, and okay. uh, have a beer
2: that's,
1: with them. Yeah, that's so. I'm, a... Tuesday, I'd go down to Valleys, Jim and Oval, and Henry Holloway'd slot me in the centers instead of choppy close or something like that. Yeah, and then Thursday, I'd go down to Langlands Park and Desi Morris find find a spot for me somewhere, or I'd just run around the field with them. Uh, I remember my dog used to run with me and. John Sattler came to West and we are running around Perth Hill Park with pretty ordinary lighting there and he tripped over my dog and hurt his knee.
3: <laughs> oh, oh, who no. the dog
1: is that bloody thing?
3: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so anyway, I got to know the players a bit better and I think by the second season, I sort of I didn't really need the program. I knew who the players were. What was going on? I started on. to enjoy it.
2: So at the same time, so you're doing the rugby league commentary, I, I know you start doing a bit of cricket commentary during the summer and are you doing, during the day, are you doing, are you on doing the news or anything at this stage, or what, do you, how do you get, what are you up to?
1: Yeah, mainly radio. I did a little bit of TV early in my career, but not a, not a great deal. You know, we used to do a program called Sporting Highlights, which is 15 minutes of radio every weeknight at 6.30. Yeah. And so you, that would be your baby. You'd get some stuff on the wires from overseas, the telexes that we used to get. BBC World Service had put out a report on the air-sporting scene, so you might get something of interest to Australia, you'd pick that out. Then you'd go out with your recorder and interview. could be um, you know, a rugby league player who was uh, injured in doubt for the weekend's game, or it could be a new referee or any number of things. And we'd make up our own program for 15 minutes, and it'd take you most of the day to do that. We also had to do the bookings for outside broadcast, so you'd have to do the paperwork to look the lines through the PMG, which it was in those days. Yeah. Um, the, the microphones and all of that stuff. You'd go and suss out the commentary position at the Brisbane Cricket Ground, you know, that sort of stuff during the day. And then on the, on the evening, you'd do your radio show and get home around
2: seven. Pete, hey, who were you commentating with it for the cricket and when you first started in Brisbane?
1: Jack McLaughlin, Peter Burge. Ken Mackay, uh, and I didn't get to do the tests in, from 1970, 71, because I arrived in 71. I did my first test in 74, 5, uh, Australia versus West Indies, and I worked with Lindsay Hassett and Keith Miller as legendary players.
2: Oh, what about Keith Miller? I mean, working with him, but having a beer with him would be just something that I'd, you know, a lot of people had put that on their bucket
1: list if you had to do. Absolute legend and a really nice guy uh, with an extraordinary memory. Uh, he, he really inspired me, Keith Nugget. He was another Nugget like Norman mate. and he had this incredible memory. I remember going to the Adelaide Art and he remembered the name of the gatekeeper on the first morning we arrived there, and then he remembered the tea lady's name. And that was a reunion of the great of '48. Bradman was there and Arthur Morris and. Yeah. Bill Brown and Keith Miller and, you know, and Keith introduced me. I was only there having a beer with Lindsay Hassett because he'd invited me to come over to have a beer with him because he, I'd lined up his pad and his pencil and his ashtray for his pipe and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So I ended up standing amongst all these legends and Keith Miller went around the group. There were about 10, 12 people in a circle and not all of them were legends and he remembered everyone's name and introduced me. It brought me into the conversation. What do you think about being able to bowl three bounces and over, Pete? You're the only one among us still playing the game. What do you reckon?
3: Yeah.
1: And, I mean such a, a fantastic guy, and, uh, a bit like a movie star. He was. He had that charisma.
2: Mm. Did he talk about? Did he talk about anything? Else? Did just one of the great? Did he ever talk about the war or anything like that, or not? You probably didn't get that opportunity, did you? he didn't like talking
1: about the war. No, he, he look. He was a very human humane sort of a guy, and the first morning that we checked into the hotel, he said, come with me, I'll show you what to do. Mm. We went down the street uh, from the Oberoi, which was the hotel that we stayed at overlooking the Adelaide Oval, Mm. just down the street at North Adelaide, North Terrace, I think it was, and there's a couple of uh, mixed businesses there, and we went into the fruit and veggie and got some fruit, and he got a couple of muesli bars or something like that, and he said, "You know." you're going to have a late night, you're going to miss breakfast, you'll need this because you'll be working all day. And, yeah. you know, he just gave me little tips like that. Keep a notebook with you so you can write all your notes. Mm. Uh, he was tremendous to be with. I'll tell you a funny story about him. I did the centenary test at Lords with Keith and we're sitting in the pavilion in the uh, top deck of the pavilion and Keith and Kim Hughes has hit the biggest six I've ever seen straight down the ground and into the pot plants next to us. Mm. And i have just used every superlative that I could think of. The most amazing shot. It was Chris Old was using the second new ball, the first over with the second new ball, rolling fairly quick as he used to. Mm. And Jim Hughes went down on one knee and flat batted it like a baseballer if you can picture that, yeah. and hit it into the top deck of the pavilion. And I've just gone off. That was one of the great hundreds that I've ever seen. And pity the match was washed out. It was a draw. But I've gone off. You know, this is the most superlative, brilliant shot that's ever been seen at this illustrious old ground. What do you think, Keith? And Keith nonstop, said, well, actually, I hit three over the top during the victory series on 47.
0: Hey, Pete, just, just out of curiosity, were you in the press conference when Kim Hughes announced he's retired, or he's stepping down from Australian captain?
1: I was in the second row. He almost tripped over me as he went out with tears streaming down his face. Yeah. And I knew that it was going to happen. Yep. Uh, one of our cable pullers got a whisper that he said to me, "Pete, there's a press conference on, and it's going to be about Tim Hughes resigning as Australian captain." I said, "Oh, bull! That wouldn't happen.
3: Yeah.
1: Uh, that's you know that's never going to happen. Why would he?" And this guy was right, so we got a camera in there. Mm. Uh, which I I don't know how many other stations had cameras in there, but I rang our producer and said, get a camera into the press room, which was just a tiny little room
2: uh,
1: under the member's stand at uh, at the gather. Mm. And uh, Kim tried to read out a press statement, and he only got halfway through it, and he burst into tears and staggered out. Poor old A.B. got handed the captaincy, when
2: he didn't really want it. Mm. It was a tough time for Australian cricket. It really was. I mean, he, I mean, just on an aside there, they keep bringing that footage up when, you know, now even. I think it's completely different than some of the reasons why people have re- resigned as Australian captain recently. But, mate, he was a... Mate, I was just thinking press conferences, we're even, not even in touch on that, but we're going to talk about today. You would have been in some amazing press conferences in your, in your career. Oh, yeah, lots and
1: lots of press conferences. And you always going prepared, bang over. i remember. never what year was it when Lily and me and Dad had their fight? I'm um, uh, just trying to think.
2: We're talking about it with Mel Johnson last week, weren't we? Yeah, that's right. Yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, well, I, was, I didn't call that, but I was sitting behind Alan McGovern who did call it. Yeah. He wanted Lily kicked out of the game because he was a stickler for good behaviour, old Mac. Yeah, And um, so I was told to go down on behalf of the ABC and interview Lily and me and Dad. So <laughs> I interviewed Lily... Uh, sorry, I interviewed me and Dad, and he said, Lily called me Betty Names,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and and uh, Lily told me to F off, so uh, it was difficult, because I was seen as, uh, you know, the ABC, face of the ABC sort of thing, and, uh, and Greg Chappell and Ian Chappell, and those guys were all associated with Channel 9, so they didn't uh, approve of the ABC and they didn't certainly didn't like uh, McGilvray saying that Lily should be suspended from the game. Uh, as it turned out, he got, I think, suspended for two one-day games. But I went to this press conference with Lily and me and Dad and Greek Chapel and you know, all the officials on both sides and it was packed, you know, 30 or 40 people. And I knew... That before that I knew the ABC version and I knew the Channel 9 version and they differed. So what, I don't know if Mel told the full story because when Lily and me and Dad clashed, Lily had none for 120. Me and Dad was on 70 and me and Dad was cheeky. He was a, uh, a feisty little fella. He used to give a lot of, lot of cheek, mm-hmm. pledging. Mm-hmm. And Lily got pretty upset with him. And he turned the ball down the deep, fine leg, sauntered down the pitch, looking over his shoulder as he, he was sort of jogging. And Lily looked across, because he was walking back to his mark on the right-hand side of the pitch, and he walked across and put himself deliberately in front of me and Dad. So that me and Dad, who was looking over his shoulder, walked into him holding his bat and hit him in the back with his bat. And Lily reacted like he it was, it was a prize fighter. You know, he sparred up. And... I think Lily wanted to provoke a confrontation. That's the way I saw it anyway, because he's the one who went across to the other side of the pitch where me and Dad was walking. And um, it looked like it was going to be pretty nasty. Tony, of the umpire, intervened and broke them up and quieted them down and the match went on and Lily ended up getting no wickets. Me and Dad got 100, so you know who won that argument. But um, the next day, Lily... I was told to go and get an interview with Lily Belmont, TV producer. He said, you, you didn't get him today, but I want you to get him, no matter what it takes, get him for, for tomorrow's program, first thing, because this is the, the big controversy everyone's talking about. So I got down to the nets. So I was the first person there as we are marking out the, the pitches. And then the first person to arrive for training is DK. Yeah. And he sees me. He says, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I thought we could bury the hatchet. And, you know, I just wanted to hear your side of the story. He said, you've already made up your mind about my side of the story. Do you really want to know? Watch Channel 9. Piss off. And, oh, so I I failed. And, in fact, they had a press conference, and I went along to the press conference, and I gave the ABC version because Greg Chappell stood up and he said that, you know, Lily was completely uh, faultless, that it was all me and Dad's fault, and that me and dad should be punished and not Lily. Uh, and if anyone disagreed, you'd like to hear. And so I stood up and said, well, yeah, I disagree.
2: <laughs> you said <laughs> that at a, a press two, conference you said that?
1: At a press conference, yeah. And, uh, well, I'd seen it with my own eyes and all the commentators. Good agree. on you. No, I mean, that's, I that's gutsy. That's agree.
2: brave, though. Good on you. Uh,
1: well, mate, it cost me interviewing the Australian team for that series. They want not in yeah, they put a ban on me doing interviews. Uh, so that put me in a bad position with my production producer. But I, they still kept me on as a commentator. So I still held my place. And it got to the end of the series, the last test in Melbourne, and Lily has just broken Lance Gibbs' record of 309 test wickets. Yep. And so the night before, they're going to have this conference because they promoted the fact that there was going to be a conference with Dennis Lilley, to celebrate the fact that he's the world record holder. Yeah. And um, so I did my homework, and I got to the press conference, and even though I'm banned, I sit in the front row, and they do the live crosses into the news, because it was at 6 o'clock, time for the commercial news, and Channel 7, 10, and 9 all do their live crosses. And then it's an open slather.
3: Mm.
1: And so I stick my hand up right in front of DK, And say, 10 years ago, when you were in the West Indies, you said that you wouldn't last another season because you had that severe back injury, which put you out of that West Indian tour. And you said that in 10 years' time, you'd be growing tomatoes or something. You wouldn't be playing cricket. Well, here you are. You've just broken the world record. Did you use things that upset you to fire you up? Now you're well into your 30s. How do you do it? He said, you mean like you? (laughs) Little things that annoy me? Yeah." Yeah. He said, I do, actually. And because of the fact that he had it into me, I got a reaction to my first question. He forgot about the fact that I was banned. Yeah. And so I prepared my next three or four questions. I didn't let anyone else in in the press conference. I just kept firing question after question. And they were ones that I'd really thought about. Bangor, you do this for a living. You know what I'm talking about. And uh, so I got my own little interview, which lasted about three or four minutes. And then everyone else had to go in the press conference. And at the end of it, DK came up and put his arm around my
2: shoulder and said, "Let's bury the hatchet." So that a, that's tremendous.
0: amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Hey, Pete, I'm I'm curious because you know you you touched on Channel Nine and um, obviously that was um, around the World Series Cricket time and all, pre-Packer, and, and pre-packer? pre-Packer. But then Packer come on board, you know, and the pajama party, TV lights, all that sort of stuff. Well, was there a stage where the ABC turned around and said, well, okay, you know, do we need to look at how we're bringing our, um, um, our product to, to the world or, you know, or did you guys just sort of go, well, Channel 9's doing this where, you know, we're going to, you know, just continue like we always did? They started
1: World Series in 1977, as you'll remember. Yeah. And I went to my producer, Hilton Chipson, and said, I've got an idea, why don't we have fillers when they have to go to a commercial break. So yeah. he agreed. So we went out to university and Webb Harris lined up the centre wicket. We painted the stumps pink. Yeah. We got Dennis Lilly, the leg spinner, uh, Roger Traves. I can't remember all the players that we got, but yeah. um, a number of university cricketers, Bob Crane, uh, Dougal Broadfoot. I can't remember who the guys were. Yeah. But we then filmed every kind of delivery that a bowler could bowl like a leg spinner, a rhyman, an off break, an out swinger, a leg cutter, an off cutter, you know, all those things. And we made little little cameos out of them. Yeah. And we also got little highlights from previous test series that lasted about one minute. Yeah. So that when channel channel nine were throwing to their commercial break, we would throw to one of these little fillers and we'd voice it from the commentary box. Yeah. And it worked for a couple of seasons but um producers change, ideas change. Uh, we tried to meet the, the challenge of Channel 9, but World Series cricket changed the face of the game of cricket. Uh, I think what Kerry Packer did was great for the game.
2: It's interesting you say that, because I think back to Channel 9, they, they had cameras at both ends. They brought that in. Was the ABC first up? Did they, just, did they have cameras both ends straight away, or did it take a while to go to cameras no, at both ends? it took
1: a while, took a while for us to... To do that, to follow them, uh, I remember calling uh, one day international in, in uh, England, and they didn't even have a camera side on for the run out. Calling a run out grand <laughs> old. I mean, we were we didn't have the finances, we didn't have the facilities that Channel Nine had mm. through you know their fabulous uh, corporate sponsorship that they had for their. It's really remarkable coverage of sport. Channel Nine did it for forty years and felt
3: they were
1: best at it. ABC, mm. I think, we're very good at uh, the commentary side of things. Mm. But when it came to the technology, Channel Nine were without peer, and a lot of that was responsible was due to the World Series Cricket.
2: We mm. weren't allowed, Pete, at home at Mum and Dad's at our house to watch Channel Nine you my were dad, oh, well, really? my, well, my dad, being old school Labour Party, yeah. And Kerry Packer, being, he hated Kerry Packer because he was the, you know. And if we, what we'd say as young kids, we'd go, oh, Dad, we want to watch Channel 9. No, we weren't watching Channel 9. We've got to watch the ABC, you know, like that was. Mm. So I think you, you, never, you never lost him. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, I think your old man probably was brought up listening to Alan McGilbray and he did it for 40 years. So that's
2: probably why. Mm. I think you're right. I think it was just, and it was that old school error of you know I, I actually as a young bloke thought that what Kerry Packard was doing was really bad because you know it was all this money involved and it took a while and even dad near the end of his life started to understand it, what you know what it was all about but yeah, yeah. but mate, it's actually interesting we Dougie Walters said on the podcast that you know he probably made the mistake playing in it because he it cost him money but yeah mate, gr- great error I mean just from that commentary side of things um so when did you first get into television? I remember sports scene and, and, and that side of things. When did that all start?
1: First year I came to Brisbane. Uh, my boss called me in and said, I'm putting you on uh, news and sports review, which was the Saturday night 15-minute sports show that we had. And so I was pretty nervous. Uh, I remember going on he said, uh, I warn you, Larry Pratt, the racing guy, has got a, a devilish sense of humour. He'll have a go at you. So be prepared. And I was so young, I had a mop of blonde hair, and I looked very young, so I was trying to grow a, a moustache. Yeah. And Pratty said, to the, one of the first shows when we went on, I'd, I'd do the cricket, whatever the sport was of the day, and now it's time for the racing roundup. Here's Larry Pratt. And Larry had say, oh, Pete, you've been eating those Vegemite sandwiches again.
3: Because <laughs> you have got this
1: wispy little moustache. And I said, Oh, Pratty, you said you wouldn't mention my mustache if I didn't mention your toupee. <laughs> what I didn't really know is that he actually had a toupee. Oh. He was, he, if anything, he was a little bit vain about his hair, and he used to get the makeup girl, Dawn Thompson, to sort of paint in the toupee. Oh, so, no. so that started this jousting that we used to have uh, every Saturday night. It was a bit of fun. We got away with a lot, you know. We used to dress up and set fire to each other's trouser leg and all that sort of stuff, yeah. you know. <laughs> Childish pranks. But um great era to come into the ABC, that's for
2: sure. How long before you went to Channel 7? I mean, you were with the ABC for how many years in Brisbane before Channel 7? And how did that come about? How was that? How did that change happen?
1: I, I went to Channel 7 after they'd, they'd, op- they'd tried to get me a couple of times. I said no, um, but um, after the Commonwealth Games in 1982, where I was the, the compere of that Games, mm. um, I got a, a serious offer. And Ian Duncan, the program manager, took me to uh, lunch at the Brisbane Club, and my wife and I. And after two bottles of red wine, we <laughs> we changed our minds. Yeah. We were struggling to meet the mortgage and look after our first child. Yeah, and so I ended up going to Channel Seven eventually in 1985 after what, 14 years with ABC in Brisbane.
2: 85. Okay, so it was 14
1: years. It was a bit like turning pro. You know, it's a bit like going from union to league, I reckon, because commercial television, as you know, is all about sponsorship and mentioning the right people and, you know, not mentioning certain things. And I remember the first time I went in sports scene, I, I didn't know how to trade to a break.
3: The
1: floor manager was giving me this sign. <laughs> it was like breaking a stick, and I didn't know what he was on about. What? <laughs> clowning and eventually the, the voice from the producer comes booming through throw to a bloody
2: break, you fool.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> Actually I suppose just jumping in there, that would have been a good thing in a in a way from all those years of not having any advertising, you all of a sudden get a, a bit of a break <laughs> in between. Well, it was
1: it was different, you know, you just have to sprook the Patra Orange juice and the Big Ben pies and you know, yeah.
3: all
1: that sort of stuff. Um you, you know what sports scene
0: was like. It was oh, just, mate, oh, I yeah. loved it, mate. Yeah, sports, it scene,
2: sports scene was my, you know, just, Blakey. Yeah, it was with, fantastic. And all, I mean, just some of the names from those show. I mean, Franco Callahan, wasn't he? he was on there with you, wasn't he? And yeah, was, Rod Gallegos. Rod Gallegos. Wow. Yeah. wow. Yeah. It was, um, it was just legends every, you know, you'd watch it and, I mean, it was better than cartoons.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <It> was, <laughs> yeah. So Pete, with, um, with moving to Channel 7, that probably would have also op- opened up opportunities to do the Olympics and things like that, particularly the Summer Olympics?
1: Well, it's, it's a bit of a sore point that I was actually accredited to go to the 84 Los Angeles Olympics, yeah. having done the 82 Commonwealth Games, and uh, they told me I was going to uh, Los Angeles, uh, it's mainly as a compare. Uh, but we only had radio rights, and we right. didn't have TV rights and they got a new girl in Sydney called Debbie Spillane. Yes. And I received a limo from uh, the head of radio via uh, Ian Whitehead, the uh, general manager of the ABC, to say that I wasn't going to Los Angeles, but they decided to have uh, equal opportunity, Mm. or whatever the term was. Mm. And uh, Debbie Spillane was going, and I wasn't going.
2: So, Pete, was that... One of the reasons that you... That would have been a big decision for you to go to seven, wouldn't it? Because you would have been yeah in that sense. It was.
1: It, it had a big impact. I felt you know, I felt a bit sort of poorly treated. Hmm. Plus the money. I mean, I was on $24,000 a year. And I was doing Olympics... Not, not Olympics, but I was doing Commonwealth Games, World Championships. Test cricket, Rugby League, Rugby Union, athletics. You know, I was calling everything. Hmm. And $24,000 a year was about half what my commercial mates were getting. Jeez. I remember going to uh, Edmonton for the Commonwealth Games in 1978, my first trip away, and Gordon Bray and I went into this bar and we had these leisure suits on the ABC had given us. And they had ABC on them. And they thought we were ABC Sport America, so they gave us free meals, free drinks, you know, they hated us. And they these American guys who worked in uh, media in television and they were on $200,000 a year. Then. And they geez. said, you come, over, you come over to the States, mm. you'll brain it, you'll, you know. And we try and explain to them, No, we call a different sport every weekend. Mm. We don't specialize like you do on basketball, mm. uh, NFL, uh, baseball. You know, we, it's such a different scene, but mm. the money was so different. So I went back thinking, God, well, I've got to get some more money somehow. Mm. So I managed to get a contract with Channel 7.
2: And what was that, Pete? Can you say what your first contract with them was?
1: Well, I can tell you it was more than double what I got at the ABC. Yeah. And uh, we were paying off our house, so it was very important to me. Yeah,
0: absolutely.
2: And no, and no brainer, really, in that sense. But I suppose it still would have been, after all those years, there would have been a. Did they let you go with. Um, you know, were they okay with it? Uh, ABC weren't
1: happy. Yeah. Um, I met Graham White, who was the. Uh, acting head of the ABC on a plane going to England and he said, oh, why didn't you ring me? And I said, well, you've never been to Brisbane in my experience. You know, we, you live in an ivory tower down there in Sydney. You never sort of made any attempt to keep me when I wrote uh, to the boss and said I'm thinking of going. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I, I just felt like the ABC then had pretty poor man-handling skills.
3: Mm. Uh,
1: And the same thing happened when I left Channel 7, actually. Many years later in 97, I sat next to Howard Manning in a plane going to Perth to call the World Championships in swimming. And he said, oh, why did you leave us? And I said, because you didn't give me a go. I could have called anything for you. But if you'd given me a go, I would have stayed. And that's the game, isn't it?
2: Yeah, where where did you go from 7? And Where where did you go then?
1: I worked for Pay TV. That's, That's right, yeah. All over the place. Mm. Uh, you name it, I called it. That's early uh, days
2: of pay TV too.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I, I sent my resume around to uh, every pay TV network that I could find and um, eventually I got picked up by ESPN in Singapore. Uh, it's a funny story actually because the bloke who is uh, the managing director there had played in the Journalist Cup Rugby League, which I used to play in Sydney on a Sunday afterno- afternoon. yeah. It was the greatest rugby league competition. I mean, in the days that I played, you weren't allowed to train. That was one of the rules. Mm. And there were teams there from like the Daily Mirror, AUP Telegraph, Channel 9, ABC. uh, And the team that wasn't playing that day used to do the barbecue. Uh, We had uh, A-grade referees uh, and they had a sin business. I remember this is back in 1968. One of the guys had a sin bin. And if you threw a punch at me, you'd have to apologise. You'd have to go out uh, and sit in a chair on the sidelines for five minutes. And then you'd have to buy me a beer after the game. And if you didn't do all those things, you were on the barbecue the following week. Oh, no. How good's that? Which worked
2: really well, yeah. <laughs> Mate, let's, just going back to before you went in the pay TV at seven, now that's where you did do a couple of Olympics, didn't you? Uh,
1: I did the 92 Olympics mm. for Channel 7 Yep, in Barcelona yep. Uh, where I called soccer. Yep. Uh, and I did um, whitewater canoeing. Did that would about have been... 10 quarts, actually. That
2: would have been well, tough too, wouldn't
1: it? Tough doing little that. Little bits and pieces. Well, soccer, I'd never called soccer except for little bits and pieces on the ABC and I'd never called the full game. So I was pretty nervous about doing it. They rang me the day before I left for Barcelona and said, can you call soccer because they overlooked soccer.
3: Mm. And
1: the Ruse Roos, and Nick, Nick, Neb Zelich was captain, yep. So an unknown mob. And they didn't have a high profile. Uh, they were all amateurs. Uh, and they asked me if I'd call and I said, who's my co-commentator? And they said, Craig Johnston. And I'd met Craig. I'd interviewed him before. And I thought he'd talk underwater with a mouthful of marbles say, so, yes, you've got me.
3: Mm.
1: But uh, I took a take with me from Martin Tyler, who was the English commentator who's absolutely brilliant, and, I took, and he was sort of how to do it. And I took one of Andy Paschalitis, who was a commentator uh-huh. down in Melbourne, uh-huh. who I thought is not how you do it. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I basically underplayed my hand and just tried to identify the players and play the Craig Johnston as much as I could and if they, the producers thought, oh, look, the Oli Roos aren't going to win anything, so we won't marry. We'll just send this rookie out there and we'll have progress reports. Well, it ended up we were calling every game because the Oli Roos surprised everyone and got to the bronze medal playoff. They played really well. And the last game that we did was on the finals day, or the semi-finals day, and there were 120,000 fans at New Camp Stadium. And mm. uh, Australia played Poland and lost 6-0, but to call those sort of games gave an appreciation of what a huge sport soccer is. You know, it was a real experience and Craig did a fabulous job at his first TV experience. It made <laughs> it easy for me. A
2: bit easier than whitewater rafting. That wouldn't have been easy to commentate when you 1st <laughs> never done that before.
1: No, well, we were lucky because I met Jess Fox just before her first race and her mum and dad were champions. And she, of course, is the number one in the world now, uh, a multi-world champion. Uh, and, so she sort of told me a bit about it because, you know, when they asked me, when I arrived, I was not told that I was doing whitewater rafting. And so they said, do you know anything about it? I said, no. And they said, well, nobody else goes either. Mm-hmm. So have a go. Yeah. And it, it wasn't easy, but once you got the uh, pattern, the format of it, it's not that hard to call.
0: Hey, Pete, I'm, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to line up my um, years my here, but... Um I remember Paddy Welsh telling a story um, when he covered the Olympics, and particularly with the European names, we I mean, were having a little trouble pronouncing and whatnot. And it, they'd always have a filler name by the name of Helmet Washing. Mate, was that? Uh, oh, oh, yeah, was that going yeah. around with you? Yeah, yeah, I knew that one. Not, not
1: it wasn't around when I did '92. Uh, not that I can remember, but I knew the apocryphal story that Forday used to tell about yeah. Helmet Washing. Yeah, yeah, and uh, actually. Um, the, the funny thing with the Australian team was that they had Blagojevich and Markovsky and Zelich and all these unpronounceable names. Yeah. And the only Anglo-Saxon name was Thompson, Eddie Thompson, the yep. coach, yep. and he had an un, an unintelligible Scottish accent. I couldn't understand a word he said. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I met Ned Blago, uh, Ned Zelich and Milan Blagojevich, and they were, G'day mate. How are you?" <laughs> I that, used to go on the bus to training and to games and things with them and got to know them. And uh, You're right about the unpronounceable names. Oh, that, it's something you just have
2: to practice. Yeah. That would have been hard. That would have been hard. Mate, so going through all of that, so when you get out of seven and you, you join ES, go through ESPN, what year did you start doing the Sports Stars and Legends show? Because I'd love that. And there was, what, 72 of them you ended up doing?
1: Yeah, yeah. I started doing that... Um, with a producer from a company called Eurocam in Sydney, Greg Walker, who approached me to do some sports interviews. And I didn't realise that it, would, it, was a, it was a pilot. And the first one we did was Ian Healy. Mm.
2: Oh, Heals was a first. OK.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we did it out at Bottomley Park. and uh, oh, No, hang on. No, it wasn't Bottomley. It was Moss Oval in Sydney. We oh. did the pilot. Yeah. And Heals was so good. He gave us half a day of his time and didn't ask for a fee. And he's an absolute legend, not just as a player, but as a bloke.
2: He sure is. Uh,
1: and that uh, pilot got us the contract with Fox Sports. It was fairly early days at Fox Sports. Let me see, it was about 98, I mm. would have thought. Mm. And uh, Fox were looking for programs, and this was a very cheap format. It was a, an armchair chat with very little pictures. The first season we did 14 programs, we lost money. Because we tried to put pictures in, you know, Mm. like I did David Campuzzi down at his sports shop at Circular Quay, Mm. and I put in pictures of him playing for the uh, Australian Wallabies and the Barbarians, and got pictures from all over the place, but you have to pay for those things. Mm. And we ended up sort of coming out on the the debit sheet as losing. Mm. So for the second season, we just started doing interviews in the armchair chat a couple of comfortable armchairs that were well-lit. And the people were so interesting that they carried it for half an hour. We never got complaints about the fact that they weren't moving pictures. So the formula worked. Uh, I did it for five years. Uh, it looked like it was gonna fold after about one year. Hmm. Fox said, we want some real superstar. So they said, if you can get someone like Greg Norman or Pat Rafter, we'll keep the show going. I tried Pat, and he, his manager. His brother Steve said no, but I tried Greg Norman, and through his manager, I eventually managed to get him. Uh, it was Frank Williams who used to be his manager until uh, Greg left and went to America. Mm. And I rang, I got the number in America, and I rang his manager in America, whose name escapes me now. And he just said, "No, Greg's too busy; mm. hasn't got time to do that sort of thing." Mm. And I thought, well, that's the end of it. And I rang Frank Williams and he said, look, you live in Brisbane, don't you? He's coming to Brisbane for the PGA at Royal Queensland next month. Mm. So why don't you ask him yourself Mm. if he'll do an interview? Mm. I said, oh, that's a great idea if you think. He said, oh, look, he'll talk to anyone and he knows you, so you'll be right. So I went out. On the first day of the Wednesday, before the tournament began, I went to the pro-am and Greg had hit his drive right down the middle, as he always did. And I walked up behind him and said, G'day, Greg. And he said, Yeah, okay. What do you want? So I wanted to do an interview with you. He said, Sure. When I finish the round, come and get me. And I said, No, this is your whole life story. I'll need at least an hour of your time. Mm. Makeup and hair and lighting and, you know, it's, it's a big deal. We can do it in the boardroom here at RQ, if you like. And he said, Mate, when do you want to do it? And I said, well, how about when the tournament finishes? What about Monday morning? And he said, I'm flying back in my own plane. I'm flying the plane out on Monday morning to go back to Florida. Yeah. And, oh, geez. Right. Um, he said, i tell you what. I've got an idea. I've got an early tea time on tomorrow. I, I'm sorry, on Saturday. So if you set up in the boardroom, I'll be free by 12 o'clock and we'll do the interview. I said, oh, you beauty. So we, <laughs> we set up all these people, makeup, cameramen, lighting, you know, because we paid for it all ourselves. Mm-hmm. And Greg had a shocker. I mean, he's gone 68, 67, and then 74. Oh, the no. <laughs> and I'm watching the last last hole, and he, you can see he's pissed off, and oh, I just <laughs> knew it was bad. Mm-hmm. So I, I put my name on it business card and said we're set up in the boardroom ready if you want to do the interview well he didn't even reply he just jumped in his car and drove off in a cloud of dust and I didn't see him so I tried to get him and I saw his manager on the Sunday on the final day and he said no he's too busy today final day of the tournament he can't do it and so I I just wrote a little note to him and bashed it to him Mm -hmm. And about a week later, I'm at home in bed, and I hear the fax machine, you know, as the, the noise, the fax machine used to mm, make, mm, that funny noise. Mm. And I go out, and it's a note from Greg, from uh, the Regent Hotel in Perth. I'm at the Regent. I'm available. Uh, how about three o'clock tomorrow afternoon if you want to do the interview? I'm in bloody Brisbane, and my producer's in Sydney. So I rang my producer, and he said, right, Jump on the next plane to Sydney, and you and I are trying to turn straight away. And we're going to book into the next room to
2: pick Greg Norman yeah. because we have to get him; to, or otherwise, the show's gone down the gutter. Yeah. So just jumping, jumping in, Pete. Next- Pete, just jumping in there. We at the yeah. time when he didn't. I know he has a seventy-four. You would have been pretty annoyed, wouldn't you? You've set up you set everything up to do the interview, and yep. you said he'd do it. Yeah. Yeah,
1: mate. You get used to it in the game. Yeah, true. Uh, true. People true. change their minds. I hadn't promised him 10,000 bucks to
2: do the interview. <laughs> so, you you're on, so you're on the plane to Perth?
1: Yep, on the plane to Perth, Look into the Regent Hotel in the next room to him. And uh, my, my producer rings him up and it's all teed up. He's playing at the Vines tournament. So mm. we go out and watch him at the Vines. Unfortunately, he has a good round. <laughs> he plays a <the> far round. <laughs> <laughs> and I followed him as he came off. And I thought, this time I'm not going to let him get away. So I followed him every step of the way back to his little mobile home where he was staying, Mm -hmm. uh, or at least he had things set up when he was at the golf course with his manager. And I followed him. I reckon he must have signed 30 autographs and done three interviews on the way back. It just gave you an insight into how busy someone like Greg Norman is. Mm. And as he was about to jump into this mobile home, he turned around and said, I know you've been following me. It's in room 258. I'll be there in an hour okay? So we wait, and he's half an hour late, and I'm, you know,
3: yeah.
1: sweating blue light. <laughs> and uh, he eventually comes out looking a million dollars, and uh, he did the interview, and he liked it so much. We normally did half an hour, but when we changed the reel, he said, I'm enjoying this. Go on. So we got uh, actually 56 minutes, which we didn't have to edit a word out of it, and it was the best interview I ever did, I reckon.
2: That's incredible, isn't it? I mean, we want to get him on just having a crack too. If you could just send him a fax, um, Pete, that'd be really yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. We'll get him, he could be after
1: you. <laughs> but just, I haven't got his current number. <laughs> but I'll tell you, tell you who does have it, Paddy Welsh has it.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, Pat's been lucky enough to get in the plane a few times, hasn't he? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, he always flew with the shark, didn't yeah. he, Paddy? Because he got to know him so yeah. well. Pete, what's the shark like as a person? Give us an insight.
1: He's got a... A real charisma, a real aura about him. Yeah. He's got these cold blue eyes. And um, but you know, you wouldn't believe it, Banga. I'm actually slightly taller than he is. He oh, is. Wow. I'm six I'm six foot one, he's six feet tall. Yeah. And I couldn't believe it when we took a photo outside the studio after doing the interview in Perth. Uh, I'm actually slightly taller. And he looks so tall because he's so broad in the shoulders and lean in the waist, you know. Mm. He's really uh striking-looking fellow because uh, he's Scandinavian background. Tony and Merv, his parents, have got Scandinavian background. Mm. Um, but he's the sort of guy that you do not cross. If you do the right thing by him, he'll always do the right thing by you. And if you cross him, he'll wipe you. And he doesn't—he doesn't mind telling you what he thinks, and that—that that happened actually. If I could just tell you a little anecdote, it's yeah, the British Open. Yeah, uh, I was in England doing the, uh, doing Wimbledon and a few other jobs for Channel Seven. I was about to go to the Commonwealth Games in Edinburgh, and I was watching the British Open golf tournament at uh, Turnbury on BBC TV, and I thought, gee, the shark might even win his first major here.
3: Mm.
1: So I've rang my boss and said, can I fly up to? Edinburgh, and book a car and go down and see if I can get Greg Norman because he might win this tournament. And they said, "Oh well, it's a bit of a bit of a gamble, but okay, if you think it might happen." So coming into the final days, four shots behind Sao oh, Aoki, uh, and I've flown up to Edinburgh, I've driven down with my cameraman from Channel Seven, Chris Dedman, Punk as we call him, mm-hmm. and the best cameraman I ever worked with, and uh, we get to. Turnberry and they've got signs at the entrance no no cameras no dogs and I thought oh dear we're in trouble here
3: because
1: mm-hmm. we had no accreditation and of course they once they saw us they put us into a mobile home and made us dismantle the camera so that we didn't use it as Greg was winning the tournament as I expected he would he got into the road hole bunker and took mm-hmm. six to get out and mm-hmm. that was the end of the story and Greg won by four shots uh, and I think Jimmy Tucker's got the divot that Greg hit his last shot under the green nah. at Turnby that day. Yeah. Uh, but I was stuck in a mobile home when the I said, look, I've got an idea. Put the camera together and we'll go out to the scorer's house and we might be able to get a shot of Greg there and he might even do an interview before the press conference. So anyway, we set up and we had these distinctive red, black and yellow yep. jackets that Forex gave us, who <laughs> sponsored us. Yep. And... Um, Greg walked straight past. He almost trod on me as he walked in to sign his card. And Pete, Bender, his caddy, had the old mug, pretty and trophy, full of beer, was sculling it. Come on, Shark, help me out with the beer. And as he comes out after signing his card, he relaxes yeah. and he sees us and says, "What are you likes doing here? Because we're the only Queensland film crew there."
3: Yeah.
1: And we said, "Well, we just hoped you might do all right, and we might." Um, you know, I'd get an interview with you. And he said, what, now? I said, yeah, if it suits you. He said, yeah, for sure, let's do it. And a bloke from the Royal and Ancient came in and said, Mr. Norman, you have your obligations in the press tent. There's hundreds of media waiting there for you. He said, who won this bloody tournament, you or me, looking straight at this poor little man? Yeah. And he's got those piercing blue eyes and the bloke melted away. And I got my interview great interview. He just looked at the camera and said, look, I've got the monkey off my back now. Stick with me. This is going to be the first of many. Well, he only won one more. Yeah, he did. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we, all, we all know the near misses that the shark had.
3: Yeah. And uh, then, so
1: that wow. wasn't the end of the story, Banger, because we were then an hour and a bit away from Edinburgh where the production house, Piketty Pictures, was where we had to develop the uh, interviews and uh, the pictures and uh, send them up in the satellite to get back to Channel 7 at midnight. And so anyway, there's bumper-to-bumper traffic, so I went up and asked the cop if he could help us, and he said, yeah, follow me. So I've got a little rented Ford laser up onto the grass, and we went out to the main road, and the cop gave us a motorbike escort all the way down, passing all these cars, and he said, you're on your own now. So i flogged the car as fast as I could go to try and get to Edinburgh in time, I got to the outskirts of the city, not knowing where Piketty Pictures is, because we didn't have Google Maps in those days, mm. and um, I got heard the siren of a, a Range Rover behind me, and we got booked for speeding. So the last thing I needed was a hold-up. Mm. I said to this bloke, this is uh, the friendly games, do you reckon you could show us where Piketty Pictures is? And his mate wanted to book us, but he said, oh, who cares, Look on. let's have a bit of fun. So they took us down Prince Street, the main street of Edinburgh, with the lights flashing and the siren blaring. And we got us to pick, pick any pictures right on midnight, we took the tape up, and the bloke said to me, right, give me your uh, media pass and your licence because you blokes are going to pay for this. And he had a real straight face. And then he wrote his name on the back of my media pass. And he said, the name's Jock. Next time, give us a ring and we'll give you an
2: escort because we haven't had so much fun for years. How good's that?
1: (laughs) That's funny. How
2: good's that? And
1: it was the lead lead story on all the Channel 7
2: news the next night. The next night. Okay. Unbelievable. So, um, Pete, you like like this one too, just quickly, whether we put this in the podcast or not. Johnny Salter, the before mentioned, he played under-14 rugby league for North Queensland with Greg Norman. Oh, serious? Yeah, we're up at Coolum really? one year. We'd all had a few beers, all the boys, mm. at, when, the Hyatt, when the PGA was at Coolum. And anyhow, Greg Norman's in the bar about 1am in the corner after it. And Johnny's there with us. And Johnny says, I played rugby league with that bloke. I said, I'll go and get him. Mm. <laughs> so I walked over to Greg Norman. I said, excuse me, Greg, you remember Johnny Salter? He says, yeah, I played rugby league with him. He says, tell him to come and have a beer. So I went back to Johnny and I said, the shark said, come and have a beer. He said, tell the shark to come to me.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so,
2: so I go back oh, to the well, shark. He
1: was, a, he was a bit of a legend and he told, <laughs> he told,
2: and he told No, he had a million. He had a couple of beers. I went back to the shark and I went, mate, you've got to go to him. And he says, no. He said, I'm hiding in this corner trying to hide from blokes like you that are drunk. <laughs> so Johnny ended up having a yarn to him, went over to him. And, mate, they oh, chatted yeah. for ages about the old days and, and that sort of thing. But yeah. who, who else did you get on the show that you remember? In 72 shows, obviously, Heels first up, Greg Norman. Are there any others? I mean, they were all legends, but are there any others that you just went, wow? Oh, you name them. Uh, Wally, of
1: course. Mm. I did Wally, and uh, the first time we did the interview, you know how hard to get he was in those days at oh. the peak of his fame. And the the tape was faulty and uh, there was a lawnmower going next door to his house and it sort of drowned out the sound of the interviews. So I had to ring him. It was like asking the Pope for another audience, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And uh, while he could be difficult at times, but he was so good and uh, we did it at Stuart Home Chapel, Stuart Home School up on Mount Stuart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he gave me a terrific interview. He got tears in his eyes when he spoke about his daughter's deafness. That was a memorable one. Uh, David Campisi was a great hero of mine in rugby. Uh, Alan Border. Um, I did Ron Clark, the great
2: runner, wow. before he died. Oh, yeah. wow. Um, and, and Pete, did you do it at, like, it wasn't always studio, was it, by the sounds of it? You had to go to them a lot of the time. Yeah,
1: well, we did AB in his um, backyard, sitting uh, in the hot sun, <laughs> which wasn't the ideal place to do an interview. Um, that was a bit of a problem in the early days, so we came across a, an innovative way of doing it. Uh, I was part owner of a sports bar called Adrenaline in Charlotte
0: Street. I know it all too well. We were just
2: talking about this yesterday <laughs> with
1: Pete and I. <laughs> New blokes would have been there. Well, yeah, right, we kept your phone. We <laughs> about 3 a.m. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> Shit.
1: But uh, well, it was a great venue, and it looked terrific when it was clean and tidy and there were no people in there, so yeah. we lit it really well and had two comfortable armchairs, and that became the venue for quite a few of the interviews. Yeah, but right. a lot of the time I'd go to, like, Sydney and get a hotel room and, uh, oh, some funny stories. Uh,
2: that you probably can't repeat,
1: <laughs> some of them. <laughs> well, would you believe that Nick Farr Jones and Greg Matthews were best mates? No No, I wouldn't,
2: I wouldn't. Would. <laughs> nor no. did
1: I. I thought they were polar opposite yeah. in personality and behaviour. And I did Nick Barr Jones and then No, I, I did Greg Matthews first in this hotel room at Dowling Harbour. And uh, he he wanted, I didn't pay any money for any of these interviews. just used goodwill, hopefully. <laughs> and I gave him fifty bucks and said, Jones, shout yourself a drink. Mm. He said, I'm waiting for a mate. So here, here's 50 bucks. He came back halfway through the interview with Nick Far Jones and said, I've spent the 50, can you give me another 50? Mm. And then after the interview, he and Nick, who was in a three piece suit working at a stock breaking firm, went down with Greg, who had a Led Zeppelin shirt and leather, black leather boots on, mm. and the two of them got on the drink together. And it just amazed me. I, I just never thought those two would go together.
2: Would have been a glass of red, wouldn't there, with Nick Far Jones? He loves his red wine, doesn't he?
1: Yeah, he's a lovely guy. I don't know
0: if you've met him. Yeah, but, I have. Uh, I've
2: actually interviewed him. He's a, he's, a, he's a good guy, actually. He's a fantastic mm. guy. A good player, too. Pete,
0: Pete, looking back on your career, mate, is there is there one particular moment where you've had time to reflect and sort of, you know, you, you've sort of gone, wow, that, that that was a significant piece of history in time? Oh, gee, I know
1: what you mean. Yeah. Um, I, well, a couple of things. Uh, The first interview, Uh, the first commentary I did that I told you about in 71 at Ballymore, when the Queensland team beat the British Isles, that to me was a -a once-in-a-lifetime kind of a match. Yep. Uh, Then the first Origin match, I called the first Origin match uh, Lang Park
3: Mm.
1: with Cyril Connell in Mm. 1980, and at the time I didn't think it was going to be as big as it is, I just thought it was an exhibition match, you know, Mm. so I didn't get all that excited about it. Mm. Uh, but when Queensland won, I got pretty excited. <laughs> uh, you get what I'm trying to yeah, say. I didn't realise the importance of it. And again, again I was at the Gabba when we finally broke the duck and won the Sheffield Shield for the first time.
3: Yeah,
1: I wasn't calling it. I just went there and covered it Channel 7.
2: It's a, so, I mean, yeah, In what you've just mentioned before, I mean, Greg Norman winning the British Open, Kim Hughes' press conference. I mean, you could just go on mm. and on with some of the, the, the moments in time that, that you've been a part of. And I'm just thinking about that Legends show. Now Crash has done his show. You know, there's a lot of – there's been a lot of follow-up, you know, even Mike Sheehan with what he does. They're very – they've all copied your, what you sort of did, I believe.
1: Yeah, it was an armchair chat format, which works well if you've got a good talker mm. uh, and you don't need pictures mm. uh, because people are so interesting. You've got to do a lot of homework, i found found you know, – And I had a very good producer, because he opened my eyes to the importance of humanity, Mm -hmm. not just sport.
3: Mm -hmm. You
1: know, and one of my regular questions used to be, what makes you proudest? And people would say, I would say anything. You know, Mm -hmm. what was your proudest? Oh, when my first child was born, or, Mm -hmm. you
3: know,
1: when I met my wife for the first time and she said, what a good looking bloke I was, (laughs) you know, Um, that to me is very important, but People can relate to
2: you, you know. Actually, jumping in there, mate, what what makes you the proudest? I know Blakey was sort of touching mm. on that. What's the proudest thing that you look back on? In
1: my career, doing the eighty-two Brisbane Commonwealth Games as the anchor man, uh, I worked one hundred and sixty-two hours in front of live in live TV, yeah. uh, and it was it rated fifty-six. So it was the highest rating program recorded at that stage. Um, I think that, for me, that's the thing I feel most proud of. It was such a success, the Commonwealth Games, and the ABC did a terrific job covering it. I still think that the way we covered it then should be standard for every network. Because, like, I went to the uh, Barcelona Olympics 10 years later and they didn't do, Channel 7 didn't do what ABC did in 82, which was to go all over the world and interview potential medalists and package little profiles of them. So we had Don Quarry running on the sand in Jamaica saying, hey, man, why would I not be fast when I've got this background? And uh, Daley Thompson in the rain in Manchester, you know,
3: uh,
1: Rob Perella on the greens at uh, Stone's Corner, you know, playing lawn bowls. Um, the marathon. The marathon.
2: Food. What about the marathon? Yeah. We were drinking beers. Yeah, well, I was drinking beers on Coro Drive. I was working for Leo Burnett Advertising and... At 7am, we're drinking beers watching Robbie Stella run past.
1: Oh, wasn't that fantastic? And we, we did stuff with him. Uh, I ran with him around uh, the university uh, in the joggers. And we stopped and sat on a park bench. And I said, what are your tactics going to be? And he said, well, they're going to come out fast at me. I know that. But I'll get them on the hills around St. Lucia. And this, he knew that was going to happen. And it did. With the kanga and Shahanga, the two Tanzanians, and he made up more ground than anyone in the history of the event uh, to win it, in front of his home crowd, of course. And it, it, it eventuated just as he predicted it would. So I was very lucky to be in that situation.
2: Mate, writing has become a big part of your life. I mean, I, I've been reading your book last night on commentators. I mean, just incredible where you've met and worked with. Yeah, you sort of get uh, used to rubbing shoulders with the
1: the great and uh, you know uh, fame is an amazing thing um, you know like I, I once had a beer with Mick Jagger uh, at Lords uh, mm. which you know if I hadn't been with the ABC and in my job and told to go and get somebody who liked cricket I wouldn't have ever met him
3: mm. but he
1: was drinking with the Australian guys uh, Dougie Walters uh, Kerry O'Keefe, and Gary Gilmore mm. and uh, you know I managed to have a bit of a chat to him and he was very interesting he said he played cricket for his local village team, but he was hopeless. He used to arrive last, jump over the fence so nobody annoyed him. He'd bat number eleven. He'd have one over at the end of the innings. And then he'd jump in his car and drive home. And I said, who'd want to be famous? Who'd want to be Mick Jagger? And I said, wait. I said, why are you down here in the bar, the Warner Stand, when Jerry Hall, your wife's up in the members having champagne? And he said, Because I've been banned for smoking marijuana. <laughs>
3: Put up there. <laughs> oh,
2: no. No, because he, he comes to Australia and he? he used to come to Australia and catch up with DK and Tomo, didn't he, and all those guys? Mate, so, so with the books, um, you've, you've actually got a new one coming out too. Yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly different. It's my first novel. It's called Long Shot,
1: and it's about a cricketer being assassinated when he's batting in you know, a test match at the Sydney Cricket Ground. Uh, he's a young South African guy who's a superstar in the making, but yep. he gets killed because of the money that's being wagered by the gamblers. And then it's uh, sort of a uh, murder mystery type thing to try and catch the killers. And it's come, it's being uh, published in London in the next couple of months, but I can't give you a date for the release, but it's called Long Shot. It's got a cricket team, obviously.
2: Mate, just to finish, I mean, some of the other things looking back on, on your life in, in the media and, is there anything else there that we've, we might have missed?
1: Um, one of the things that I suppose we haven't touched on, uh, because I was a mad keen sportsman, and I haven't just liked watching sport in my life, I've liked competing. Mm. I still play a lot of tennis, and um, I've done my back. I can't play my beloved golf anymore. But um, because I worked every weekend on public holiday, I used to take time off when I got holidays to go on cricket trips.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So I went um, pretty well, not not all the cricket-playing countries. I've never been to Pakistan, but I've been to most of the others and played cricket with teams of varying standards but been lucky enough to play against a few test players. Um, went to India in 1970 and played at all the test grounds. Uh, went on a world tour in uh, 1979 and we played in seven countries in seven weeks. Uh, Gordon Bray was on that trip. Yeah. Uh went to Barbados, uh, the UK several times, in New Zealand. Yeah, you know, just very lucky, playing in places that did, like China or Holland. Uh, and it kept my interest in the game going. The last time I played really was in France where I was doing a Rugby World Cup uh, spectators trip on a bus and uh, we played a cricket match and there were blokes there like Greg Matthews played, but there was an American who had never seen a game of cricket, let alone played it. He was a baseballer. That's the aspect of my life that uh, I consider as sort of unusual and satisfying for me. It's been a lot of fun.
0: So, mate, you're up on the Sunshine Coast now. You're a, do- you're a doting granddad. Um, would you consider yourself a retired journalist or would you consider yourself a novelist now? Uh,
1: I never retire. I'll never retire while I can still write or yep. talk. Yeah, um, I'm available for anything. I got asked to do a big function for Kiwi Two Sport last week, and uh, it was an all-day event, and I got to interview some of the old-time sports stars. So I really enjoyed that. I, I love uh, being challenged.
2: Hey, Peter, mate, it's been so good to to get you on and talk about your career and your life, and it's a it's a bloody honour actually, because you're you. Were, you even though you're a journalist, you're a bit of a legend to Blake so Blake oh, you know, growing up. And, uh, absolutely, this
0: is a real thrill. Real thrill, mate. In thank you. lunchtime, mate. That's
2: <laughs> <your legend. laughs> no, mate, but really do appreciate you coming on, mate, and, and thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Banger. Thanks, Blakey. It's uh, been a great pleasure coming on, and I'll listen to your show every time now.
2: Hi, oh, you've been listening to
0: Just Having a Crack. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure you jump across to our Facebook page and like our Facebook page, and more importantly, like the podcast on your favourite podcast app.
2: That's correct, mate. I, I'm getting my head around this now, Blackie, <laughs> because I am a complete Luddite. Yeah. But now to work out, subscribe, podcast station. People say to me, how do we listen to the podcast? Bang, And I go, well, you go, to, go into the podcast app, Yeah. and then you put in there, just having a crack, Yep. Correct. Spelled H A V I N. Yes. Ha- having a crack, and you hit subscribe. Yep. And they all come up. Yep. You get
0: all of them. How cool is that? Yeah. Well, it's great because behind the scenes, there's a lot of work that goes into our, you know, our our podcast. Well, there series. is, mate. You do most yeah, of it. Yeah, well, look, I mean, <laughs> fortunate <laughs> enough that you bring the talent, and I, uh, and I, and I just clean the back end up. But you know, it's important that you know if you like our series, get behind it and support it because we really appreciate the, uh,
2: we really appreciate the, the support. And we really appreciate your comments. I think so, mate. I think at the moment, what's been really good fun is that we're getting, it's just like having a yarn. I mean, some people are saying to us, it's, it's like listening to a few blokes having a yarn and a chat, and girls now, mm-hmm. um, having a chat and a yarn about life, general, their world, their sport, and that's cool.
0: It's good Ab- fun. Yeah, absolutely. So thanks for listening. Look out for the next one on your favourite podcast app, and you've been listening to Just Having a Crack. Let's have a crack.